You're listening to Ingenuity, the podcast that dives into the wonderful world of everything industrial. From the birth of the first combustion engine to breakthrough hybrid power technologies, Ingenuity examines just about everything the industry has to offer. The podcast provides a platform for industry leaders, engineers, scientists, and small business owners to educate listeners about past, present, and future industries across the planet. Well, welcome to uh, Ingenuity Episode 2. Um, we, today we've got Mike Brzonic, the Vice President of Editorial from KHL Publications. Uh, Mike, I'd let you introduce yourself a little bit in more detail and tell us uh, maybe a little bit more about the scope of your position and, and what your primary responsibilities are. Um, uh, thanks a lot. First of all, Zach, I am very honored to be your second um, on your second podcast. I think that's pretty cool. Um, I like these sorts of things because um, they're, they're more realistic. I mean, you're the next. You could be the engine person's Joe Rogan. Who knows? Uh, yeah. In, in any if, event. If only. Yeah. In any event, um, I am the uh, vice president of editorial of KHL's power division. And what that means is I oversee the editorial content for our power division magazines, which are Diesel Progress, Diesel Progress International, Diesel and Gas Turbine Worldwide, and Compressor Tech 2. Um, my primary job on a day-to-day -day basis is um, contributing to and running Diesel Progress North American, the thing that people know as Diesel Progress mostly. Mm -hmm. um, magazine was established in May of 1935, the heart of the, of the Great Depression. The name comes from, at that time, it was intended to be an advocacy magazine for the increased use of diesel uh, engine power because uh, way back then, it was only pretty much used for marine applications and power generation. And the people who, who founded our magazines, um, they sort of thought it, it could be used in many other places. And as you can see, they were right. Um, it was profitable from the second issue, and I'm happy <laughs> to say. That has continued in 2019, early 2019. Um, we were acquired in a very friendly acquisition by KHL, which is a was a larger publisher than we were. Uh, we had been looking for um, either a partnership or something um, because publishers, independent publishers, our size, it's getting more and more difficult to you know make make it. Um, because the second half of a publishing business is business, as we like to say. Um, so uh, KHL came along, and since then, um, uh, we've been continuing, and I see the publication going on for, you know, another 85 years, although I won't be here for <laughs> another 85 years. Well, um, I, I do have to say that it's, um, <clears throat> whenever you hear about a transition like that or someone getting bought out or, or any kind of acquisition, you always kind of sit back and go, oh, I hope we'll see how this goes, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but but I do have to say that I I don't think Diesel Progress has missed a beat. I mean, it's the getting the same the same quality of stories. Uh, I, I can I think we can see some of the additional resources and some additional capabilities that KHL has brought, but mm -hmm. um, I, I'm really happy to see that kind of the that, you know, ethos of diesel progress is still still strong. Yeah, well, thank you. I appreciate that. We try. Um, um, we, we really do uh, want to focus. These are very interesting industries. Um, and when you talk about how things get done in the world, when you talk about how the air gets cleaner, um, the engine and power industries, they're the ones that do all that. 
So what could be more interesting, I guess? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I do want to get to kind of the future of the industry and, and where that's going. Um, but, but first, something that, that I've been curious about is I, I know you've been in journalism your whole life. That's your educational background. It was your first job, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but how, how do you get from like local newspaper to, you know, off highway industrial space? What, what is that? What was, what did you just apply for a job that looked interesting or, or were you attracted to this industry, you know, from the beginning? Well, I grew up in a very working class family. My dad was a heavy equipment mechanic and uh, operator. So I was always very familiar with machines and equipment and engines. Um, actually, my wife found this job for me um, <laughs> because um, the newspaper business was, was it's a fun business, but it's not always easy. And um, it eats up a lot of hours and I wasn't getting paid tons of money. So she saw the advertisement for Diesel Progress in the local newspaper. I went and applied, and and as uh, Mike Osenga, who was the president and publisher, um, who hired me, uh, it turns out we had worked at the same newspaper. I had actually, he was a part-time sports writer at a local paper, and he graduated college in the fall of 1974, and I went looking for a job and got a job at that same paper taking his spot and we found that out when when i interviewed um but i the the joke was i was ahead of the game because i knew a different the difference between a diesel engine and a pineapple um (laughs) we have always hired journalists not engineers or not people necessarily who have worked in the industry and in journalism there's always a thing called you get assigned to a beat Mm -hmm. um a courthouse beat or, you know, the police beat or the environmental beat or something like that. So we always look at it as, okay, when you get hired by us, you're a journalist, you, here's your new beat. And over time you just learn things. And I did have an advantage because, um, as I said, I knew a lot of the players. I knew who the engine manufacturers were. I knew how a diesel engine worked in comparison to a gasoline engine. So it gave me an advantage. And it's really, uh, my newspaper friends always used to say, is that really interesting? I, I, it really is. I mean, these are fascinating businesses. The companies are all very interesting to deal with. Um, they all do uh, a lot of things very similar, but they're still different. Mm-hmm. And and in, in the main, I think they're all very well-run companies. I mean, you look at the major manufacturers that we see in our business, and you know, you represent some of them. Um, they're all terrifically terrific companies that are in the main really well run. And so again, looking at, as I said earlier, um, what makes the world go, what builds things, what, um, you know, what gives us power, what does everything and what cleans the air. It's, that's, that's, that's kind of an eye opening process. Um, you know, I, I, I kind of I, I don't I don't know if I have a good phrase for it, but it's the it's the driving down the highway syndrome where you see stuff going the other way, and my head always turns to say, oh, I know I know who makes that, or I know what engine is in that, and like look at that piece of equipment. And, and when we're on long road trips, my family's like, oh, shut up, like we don't okay, nobody, <laughs> nobody cares. Um, but it's it's really amazing how much of that equipment and how much you know engine driven stuff and off highway equipment. Builds and maintains the world around you that most people have no idea 
how deep that goes and how complex that stuff is. We had an editor once um, who worked with us for a number of years before she moved on. And um, she said that after she got, you know, really became familiar with things, when she would drive to work, all of a sudden she said, there's this whole new world I never knew was there. Yeah. I would see things and I'd go, oh, they're dewatering over there. That's a, that's a pump set. That, mm-hmm. Oh, that's a standby gen set by that building. And, or even she'd see a truck go by and she'd see the refrigeration unit on it. And she'd go, oh, that's got a little diesel engine in it that's keeping that thing cool. And yeah. she said, I had no idea that any of this stuff existed. And that's what it is for most people. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's kind of invisible until until it's not, you know. It's, until it doesn't work. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> that's when. <laughs> yep, yep. Uh, I'm Mike, I'm also interested in terms of, of what the – so what kind of the – what's the, the – how is the sausage made at Diesel Progress? The it seems that you know you could probably just sit back and wait for press releases to to come out from from companies about new stuff that they're doing, um, and then and then to just kind of regurgitate the stuff that's in the press releases. Uh, you know, your your most recent Top Dead Center article talked about you know some of this robotic editing that that's happening, and it seems that you could probably build a publication around that. But um, what? How do you guys go out and and find the stories? You know what? Is there a proactive side to to the to the journalism piece of this business? Well, absolutely. We we one of the things we like to do is talk to people because uh, we develop relationships and and it's very common that in talking to people, you know, someone will say something like, "Well, you, you know, we're we're going to have a new engine uh, coming out next year," um, and you know, I around you know in the spring, so I will log that away and then in in like right around now, I'll be tapping them on the shoulder and saying, hey, you mentioned a new engine. Let's talk about that. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that uh, we like to look around and see what's happening. And, and one of the biggest things I like to, I think our role is, is ask the questions that nobody else can ask. Whether you're a supplier or whether you're an OEM, there's always situations or questions how something, why something is happening or, or, or what this means or things like that. And, and I love those kinds of stories because, you know, I can, I can go to a company and say, hey, I'm hearing this. What about it? And, it, and or, or I can go to a supplier or, you know, a component manufacturer and say the same thing. So it's a lot of fun. Um, we always had a, a motto here that I think Mike Osenga used to say, if we think it's interesting, chances are the, the readers will too. Yeah. And we've operated on that a lot. Yeah. So, you know, new technology, um, different things that companies are doing. We're always talking to people and we're always keeping our eyes open. And then we have good enough relationships where people will, I've literally had people, you know, send me an email or call me up and say, hey, this company over there, they're doing something kind of neat. You should talk to them. Mm -hmm. Okay. Sounds like a plan. And, And generally those are right. Yeah. So, you know, partly it's because we've been around a long time and there's a, you know, some old farts like me. Um, and, and it's just one of those things where it's a constant process. And yes, we do get press releases and things like that. Um, but we try never to just regurgitate things. Um, if you're just an aggregator of, let's say, press releases, you don't add anything to it. And right. one of the things we try to do with almost everything we do, whether it be on the website or in the magazine, is is try to add some either detail or perspective that maybe the other guys didn't 
look for. And so we never just take a press release and just regurgitate it. We always try to find out a little more or, you know, if there's some perspective we can add to it or something like that. It's it's just what we do. It's kind of in our DNA. Yeah, it, it seems that, that there's some big pieces of this industry that are pretty opaque um, from the outside. You, you know, you get you get the press releases or you might get some strategic statements from, from management about what they're doing, but um, that's a really different set of knowledge than like actually digging in and finding out what, what are they really trying to accomplish? How mm-hmm. real is this technology? When might, might we actually see it in the market? Right. It's, you know, um, we, we see the shiny stuff on, on in booze at trade shows, but you know, when, when is that going to hit the pavement? Yeah. And those, those are the types of things that are really difficult to suss out. From well, those it's, press it's, releases. It's one of those things where um, the the stuff that is in the news a lot today, um, electrification, hydrogen engines, hydrogen fuel cells, and things like that, that's getting a lot of attention. But there's no business there yet, and there won't be for a while. And mm-hmm. I even have to internally with, dare I say, some management have to sort of remind them of, okay, this this stuff is really, you know, because they're thinking maybe we should be charging in some other directions. And, you know, you just have to remind them that no, um, engines are going to be around for a really long time. Yeah. And, and there will be a transition ultimately, I'm sure. Um, I won't be around to see it, frankly. I don't think I'll even be alive when some of these things are the dominant form of transportation or um, off-highway work or power um, but you know, it will come, but it's not going to come. I don't believe as fast as some of the advocates would have you believe. Well, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to take your, your natural segue there to, to ask you about hydrogen a little bit too, because, um, the, uh, looking back at the newsmaker of the year stuff from 2021, um, there was, there's quite a few hydrogen stories in there. And I just, <laughs> through, through most of last year, I remember sitting back and just be like, Wow, when did people start getting serious about hydrogen internal combustion engines? Um, because it, I, we've heard about fuel cells for a long, long time. Um, you know, the, this this hydrogen economy idea came up, well, I don't know, twenty years ago, and then kind of petered out. And, and but hydrogen internal combustion engines seem to be a really make sense pathway in terms of utilizing everything we know about internal combustion engines. You know, uh, obviously we need some different fuel storage injection management stuff, but that's really not a huge technical challenge um, because we have a really good base of understanding for IC engines. Um, so it, seem, it seems like a natural progression, right? But mm-hmm. I, I still can't put my finger on why that exploded in the last 12 months. Is this something that's been then lurking under the sheets for a while and people have been kind of quietly working on it or did everybody just jump on a bandwagon this year or last well, year? Well, I, I think, you know, it, people have looked at hydrogen engines before. Um, I actually recall riding on an airport shuttle that was, it, they were testing it. It was operating on hydrogen fuel with a Ford engine um, in 1994. And, you know, that was one of the, you know, particularly the automakers, they're always trying different things. And, you know, they've got more money to, well, what would be, would it, what would it be like? Could we run an engine on this or could we do this? And, um, so they've always been great uh, for testing different things. And it never really went anywhere. I think the whole decarbonization thing um, is a big part of it. Um, hydrogen fuel doesn't have, you know, it's, no, it's a no-carbon fuel. 
So if we're really talking about CO2 reduction and decarbonization, that's a great alternative. Mm -hmm. Now, yes, fuel cells, you know, <laughs> the joke always used to be is fuel cells are the power source of the future and always will be. Um, <laughs> but um, they, they got more realistic. But to this to yet, nobody really can tell you with absolute certainty that if you've got a fuel cell in a wheel loader that's operating as a snowplow for five days in a row when the weather is 10 below zero, how effective that fuel cell is. I mean, they're working on it, and I'm sure they'll get there. Um, and I'm sure that there are some people who tell me, oh, it can do that, no problem. But, you know, I'm a little from Missouri when it comes to technology. you got to show me these things. Yeah, it, it, um, it seems like seems like most people are regarding fuel cells as kind of the um, the fully mature, you know, the end of this, you know, path to zero roadmap and that we need a bunch of bridge technologies to get us there because they still require quite a lot of maturity, you know, and mm -hmm. I think I even got that sense listening to your interview with the the CEO of, of Cummins, which is, you know, eventually this will all get replaced by fuel cells, right? But mm -hmm. but that's that's far enough away that we need a, a an array of bridge technologies or, you know, extension of some zero carbon options for IC engines and, and battery electrics and, and hybridization and all of the other, um, you know, plethora of different technologies to get us to fuel cells. And I, that seems to be the subtext to when listening to a lot of these people talk about their technology roadmaps. I think it's some of it, but I also think that, you know, depending on on the the viability, both from a technical sense and a commercial sense of, of hydrogen internal combustion engines, um, that may that future of, for fuel cells may be put off for a while. Mm -hmm. Because in, the reality of it is, is if, if you can be virtually carbon free using an internal combustion engine operating on hydrogen, well, okay, then that that's, so it's a bridge, but the bridge might be a long one. Yeah, uh, we don't know that that works. Uh, there are issues with hydrogen right now, and I'm thinking of doing a. Actually, I had an idea about doing a story about it because um, Cummins today announced that they're they're doing a test of natural gas engines and hydrogen engines in some in in vehicles with a major U.S. fleet, and um, you know that's great. Um, and and I just think hydrogen engines are a good next step. Big step toward decarbonization, um, if they work as everyone hopes they will. Um, it'll give uh, the industry a lot of time to get used to, you know, using and working with hydrogen, which will make fuel cells more viable in the future. It will um, allow a hydrogen fuel infrastructure to be developed, which, you know, let's face it, that's a, that's a huge thing right now, just as it is for electrification. Mm -hmm. Um so I think hydrogen hydrogen engines are are a really good option, and the you know the reality part of the reality of it is is I think a lot of engine companies look at it as okay we're making money with engines is there a way we can keep this train going yeah and and if it's just using a different fuel okay that sounds pretty good yeah it seems that there's um, there's a lot of kind of low barrier to entry options with you know uh, there was a a really good presentation at the last summit on, on renewable diesel um, mm -hmm. and, and what, what the hell is renewable diesel and where does it come from and how much can we make and, you know, as, as a carbon neutral fuel. Um, but there's there's a lot of different ways that, you know, the IC engine will, 
I believe, continue to be extended and used in, you know, uh, in carbon neutral or, or kind of net zero ways with some of these other fuel types. And it's just a, it's really hard to throw away a, you know, 100-year-old mature technology that's really easy and flexible to work with that already powers everything that we that we know today mm-hmm. and to throw that away and just completely change to something you know totally different it, it's gonna that's a long road i think yeah i i agree with you i think that i think that internal combustion engines burning something um has a has decades and decades of life left yeah yeah because there simply are in, in some cases there is no better alternative at all even um how you make it Plus the, I have to believe that while, let's say a hydrogen, a successful hydrogen engine would probably have to incorporate additional technology, like engines don't have enough technology on them now, but, you know, in terms of injection, in terms of, um, you know, all the different uh, things that are used in engines, filtration and, you know, you name it, um, I I think that it's possible that... uh, Things like crankcase ventilation systems will have to become a little more sophisticated because, <laughs> as you re- may recall at the summit, um, the gentleman from uh, who gave the presentation on hydrogen engines from uh, ABL, I think it was, uh, was mentioning that you know they discovered some issues with fugitive hydrogen emissions build- uh, fugitive hydrogen emissions building up in the crankcase. Well, mm-hmm. you really don't want you know a very volatile gas building up anywhere. Right. So, but there are there are solutions to that, and I think you can you will still end up with an engine um, that's less expensive than electrification or hydrogen fuel cells, and money's got to drive a lot of this stuff. Um, you can't make you know you can make it. I'm I'm sure right now you could make it probably a terrific fuel cell wheel loader, large wheel loader. But, you know, even aside from the, you know, where do you get your hydrogen, it would be really, really expensive. You, you just look at um, a lot of the equipment now that's making its way into the marketplace, electrification equipment. It's in some cases double and triple the cost of the same thing that has an internal combustion engine. And from the end user point of view, you know, just like with emissions, you know, they're paying a lot of money for not any capability for the most part that will really get them, make them more money doing their jobs. Yeah, and that, that's where that's where we really need a, a regulatory framework to kind of push the market, right? If we just rely on market forces, it's, you know, there's, there's not a lot of incentive to spend those extra dollars to, for those new technologies and equipment. And that, that's where, that's where regulation has its place, right? It's got to it's got to provide incentives or, or, or do other things to move, move the market in the right direction, right? Well, if you recall, I'm, and I said my fingers are practically falling off as I type this, but in an earlier um, Top Dead Center column, I asked for regulation mm-hmm. because right now, the, the probably the most, to my way of thinking, disturbing and difficult thing about the whole move toward uh, lower carbon or no carbon alternatives is there's there's no real roadmap. There is a hodgepodge of regulation. California is saying, you know, you can't have internal combustion, no new internal combustion engines in the state after 2030 or something. Um, cities and areas in Europe and other places are, are having different dates and different kinds of implementation. How does a manufacturer or, or an OEM, how do you plan for that? 
how do you, especially the smaller and medium-sized, the DOEMs, the kind of OEMs that you guys would work with, how does he, with limited resources, know when he really needs to invest to have his, you know, his equipment ready for that? Because it's great if he has it and nobody buys it. Um, yeah. or not great, actually. And, and so having it is only half of it. Your market has to be ready to buy and embrace. It. And that's, that's tough for now. If there was, I look at the diesel engine regulation program and I think that was terrific. Yeah, they may have squawked about it. The engine industry may have squawked about it at the beginning. But once they figured it out and they said, okay, these are the targets we have to hit at these dates. And, and it got progressively, the emissions got less and less. Everybody knew what how what the deal was in terms of where we have to be, Yeah, you know, at the end of this. Yeah, I think, I think managing that kind of a patchwork of regulations is, you're right, the smaller you go in terms of company size, the, the more impossible it is. And this, it's already a challenge today with just worldwide emissions regulations, because mm -hmm. uh, it's not just the United States and Europe regulating anymore. You've got, you know, I don't know, 20, someone's going to correct me probably, but 20 to 30 maybe regulated environments in the world now. And they've all got different test requirements, different label requirements, different actual standards to meet. And so... Mm -hmm. That's already a problem with worldwide regulations, but I, yeah, I, I think that's the same thing's true with any of these new technologies. Um, and, and to bring it back to hydrogen a little bit, there's you know there's a lot of safety concerns here too in terms of storing hydrogen at, at 700 bar, 10,000 psi mm -hmm. in a truck going down the road. You know, th there's there's a lot of just kind of ground level standards and safety things that that are going to have to get developed and agreed upon before that can really move forward in mass, I think. Yeah, well, we're, we're used to actually in society, we're dealing with really dangerous things all the time. I mean, gasoline yeah. I mean, is a very volatile, flammable thing, and we don't think anything of it, and we manage to transport it, and we manage to use it pretty safely. So I think we'll get there. Um, I personally think that, uh, you know, we've got a great way of when we get to hydrogen, moving it around the country, that's gas compression pipelines. They're used for natural gas now. We're already seeing some um, gas hydrogen blends being pipelined. Yeah, there are some things they have to do from the technical side because that little hydrogen atom really likes to get out through seals and it stuff goes everywhere. Like that. Yeah. And uh, see, so but but you know, those are challenges that I think we can. Um, we can meet easier than remaking everything. And, you know, renewable hydrogen is great. Um, I just, you know, is everybody going to have a, a hydrolyzer someplace? And, you know, uh, the truck stop is going to be making its own hydrogen? I don't know. And I'm in the interim, since we've got about two centuries worth of natural gas we're sitting on, and natural gas is great feedstock for hydrogen because, Natural gas is three parts hydrogen, one part carbon, one molecule. So if you can just find something to do with that one carbon molecule, you've got hydrogen right there. Well, that's where that's where most industrial hydrogen comes from, right? Is the is a process of reforming a, a, yeah. a fossil fuel. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the the another part of the discussion that that you were having recently too was the, um, I think in our part of the industry, we can develop technologies to utilize more electricity hybridization, you know, battery electric, more efficient, alternate fuel sources. But 
um, there really is that infrastructure piece that has to catch up. You know, electricity is only as good as where it comes from. And uh, if you're burning coal to make electricity, then your battery electric vehicle is not a, much of a great, you know, carbon footprint reduction versus just burning diesel. Exactly. Um, and, and same with hydrogen. So the, the, um, that's part of the chicken and the egg process. The, the, there's no incentive to build the infrastructure until you have a demand for the fuel source. Um, and so, again, I know there's some ideas about um, hydrogen corridors and possibly building kind of a limited infrastructure to allow those um, to allow those high traffic corridors or whatever just to build that infrastructure for that piece. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just wondering how you bridge that gap. You know, and I know it's not your responsibility to answer this question, but how, you know, how, how do you think you get from, you know, limited use, um, narrow corridor, you know, to nationwide adoption? Well, um, I think there's a lot of different things that have to happen. I think that, um, you know, Cummins is doing some really neat things. The whole idea of, you know, as you know, they're, they're both in the hydrogen engine and fuel cell business and they're in the hydrogen business. And um, I, I talked to the CEO recently and he, you know, the reason they went into that is the reason that he said, well, it'd be really hard for people to use our equipment if they don't have hydrogen. And, and he pointed out that in the early days of um, uh, SCR, they sold, they sold death through their, you know, they were in the diesel emissions fluid business for a while. For that same reason, because he said, you know, they can't use our, if they can't get certain things, they can't use our engines and equipment. Um, so that makes perfect sense. That'll be one thing. There's going to have to be government involvement. You know, once you, if you get enough, if you get enough hydrogen corridors along the major, say, let's say trucking routes, um, you know, there are certain highways that are very well traveled uh, for heavy duty trucks delivering goods all around the country. You know, you start with corridors in those places, and then it will be, you'll start to see some people doing that. But it's going to be a slow process. There's no question about it. As I, again, to point back to the very interesting conversation I had with the Cummins CEO, he basically said, without a price for carbon, for emitting carbon, it's going to be really hard to manage that transition, aka a carbon tax. Was, he was trying really hard not to say tax, and then he and then he said tax like ten times in a row. But well, yeah, yeah, it is what and, it is. But and I think he's probably right because just left on its own devices, um, you know, any kind of alternative is going to take a real long time mm-hmm. to become a dominant market yeah. force. You know, we see the push toward electric cars right now, and Again, I'm from Missouri on that. I'll see how big, you know, they're, all the automakers going to offer them, but are the, you know, are people going to buy them? We have a joke around here about, you know, uh, a focus group that reported back and said, yes, the dog food is really good. It's just the dogs wouldn't eat it. And so it's that kind of thing. Well, you know, the, the, the early market leader in electric vehicles was, was Tesla, and they had to do the same thing, which is build out their own charge infrastructure, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's... The only reason they're in the form they are today is because they had to go out and, and build the infrastructure for themselves. But even, you know, the basic reality of electric cars is I, I think what it'll come down to is not range anxiety. I think it's charging time. Availability of charging and the amount of time it takes to charge 
an electric vehicle or anything electric. Yeah. Because um, if they can get it down to where you could go 250 miles on a single charge and then recharge it in 10 minutes, okay, winner, winner, chicken dinner. But I don't know where they are on that in terms of nobody's that can charge that fast. And, you know, there are going to be issues on that because we're very used to, for, for any new technology, it's got to be at least equal to what's there to really be commercially viable. Yeah. yeah so that's how you bridge that gap, right? Yeah. You can go to, you know, you can go to a gas station and you can be in and out in 10 minutes. That's the standard that it has to hit. And we're not there yet. And maybe they'll get there. But everybody's assuming a battery technology, a breakthrough will be coming. And, you know, they've really made a lot of progress in batteries, but they also have been working on them for, you know, since the 1890s. So I, you can't just assume that, oh, yes, there's going to be a new breakthrough, you know, a week from next Tuesday, and it'll change everything. Yeah, it feels like, feels like batteries are something that are getting, you know, 1% better every year. And then mm-hmm. by the time you look around and it's been 10 or 20 years, you go, wow, they're a lot better than they were 20 years ago, yeah. but it's just kind of this slow, steady march of progress, right? Exactly. And I think that's, that's very true. But, you know, to, for it really to, to work, they're going to have to get better than 1% a year. Now, yeah. a big thing helps is that the more they make, the cheaper they get. So that doesn't hurt. Yeah, that scale is really helpful. Nonetheless, yep. uh, we're, still, we're still at the same basic problem. I, no offense, but I wouldn't buy an electric vehicle, an all-electric vehicle. I might buy a hybrid, but I, I wouldn't consider an all-electric. I'm in Wisconsin. It was eight degrees this morning. <laughs> yeah. I, I wanted to, um, you know, selfishly uh, throw a couple of questions at you about um, where you see the role of, of distributors in kind of this changing marketplace. Um you know, we're, we're an engine distributor, and so, you know, obviously that's what I care about. But um, distributors kind of fill a, a, a very specific role in the market for a certain size of customer today. And, um, you know, it's, it seems to us that, that that could change, you know, that, at least as drastically as the technology is being deployed to the market, maybe even faster than that. Um, you know, what what is... And maybe you don't even think about this, but what what is what does distribution look like? You know, in, in ten or fifteen or twenty years, once a lot of these you know technologies are more mature and in common use. Well, uh, a couple of things. First of all, we do think about that because uh, we love distributors because you know you guys do a lot of things that are first of all really interesting. I I know not every OEM can be a factory account. We just know this. I think there's going to be a role for distributors no matter what the technology is. As long as there is a power technology that's applied by large and small companies and needs some level of service maintenance, replacement, whatever you want to call it, I think there's going to be a role for distribution. I think you've seen distribution change over the last years anyway. I mean, I yep. think that, you know, now you have to be more capable. You 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 know, it's the days of just sitting by at a parts counter and, you know, waiting for people to come in don't exist. Um, so I really think that, you know, you're going to be, you know, just as, you know, companies like yours are going to be just as important down the road. Are they going to have to learn a few things? Yes. Are they going to have to invest in some new technologies perhaps? Yes. But the other thing is your, you know, the the companies you distribute for, 
they're going to be the ones, you know, ultimately doing hydrogen engines and electrification systems and ultimately fuel cells and things like that. Because, you know, one of the, you know, the really interesting parts is you see a lot of, you know, the startups that come up with really great ideas, but they may have really great ideas, but if they're really great, they'll get bought up by somebody big. And, you know, that's been happening at a rapid pace the last couple of years too. I mean, I, you know, half of the stuff you read is, 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 Deutsche by so-and-so, you know, Cummins yeah. by so-and-so. It's just, it, there's, yeah. there's been an, an insane level of acquisition of those kind of startup technology companies by, by larger people. Which, which only makes perfect sense because, you know, if you can have the greatest, you're a startup, you have the greatest idea in the world. You have a terrific product. You have no understanding really of the marketplace. You have no infrastructure to manufacture, support in the aftermarket, everything else. You know, one of the things we've always talked about is ultimately the suppliers or the supplier base isn't going to change that much because all the companies that provide power right now, mostly internal combustion engines and things like that, they're going to be the ones providing power in the future, in yeah. those future forms. So, you know, uh, you're a JCB distributor, I believe, um, at, mm-hmm. at, you know, you will handle JCB hydrogen engines. You will, when they come out with fuel cells, which probably everybody will at some point, you'll handle JCB fuel cells. Um, so I don't think the role, you know, the role of the distributor will change. You'll have to become more technically proficient, which you've done all, had to do all along. Um, but again, I just don't see, there. there's never going to be a situation where distributors go away because they do too many functions that the factory's not going to do. And there's no independent um, service aftermarket that could really do that kind of the same kind of technical things. You still work with OEM. You'll still work with OEMs to engineer power into whatever it is they're doing. So actually, I think I think the future for distribution is is pretty good. Personal. Yeah. For what I mean, for what it's worth, I I agree with you. We we see a lot of the same things, which is um, uh, you know the the way we power things is going to change. Mm-hmm. Um, but the fact that things need power is not going to change. We we still need equipment to do the job. We still need trucks to go up and down the road. You, all those things still require a power source, and are still, you know, they're still the application. But what's under the hood is going to be going to be different, of course. Yeah. So that that's, um, but that that's a big learning curve. And you're right that there's been a lot of change in distribution in the last well, since since I've been involved from the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've seen a lot of consolidation, a lot more technical requirements put on distribution just to meet, just to meet the tier four final regulations. Yeah. You know, and it's 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 that next step that uh, that I think we're kind of on the precipice of, right? That when these technologies really do become available, um, we need to figure out how to go apply them for small and medium sized companies. And that's yeah, and I I think that's something that you're. Um you know, the companies you work with, the, the JCBs, the Hondas, the, you know, all the Kubotas, everybody, they're going to be, you're going to want to partner with them very closely because they, they're going to need to help you get some of those capabilities. Mm-hmm. And it's in their interest to do so. So I'm sure they will. Um, they're not dumb. Again, they don't want to be, they can't have everybody be a factory account. Yeah. Um, so it, it's, you know, I, I think it's it's going to be uh, difficult in some cases, but you know, it, it's you're doing a heck of a lot more in some ways than you ever were before, anyhow. 
So that's just going to continue. Yeah. Yeah, I think so too. Um, <clears throat> I, I'd, I'd like to turn the conversation a little bit to the, to the diesel progress summit. Um, you know, we, you guys just finished up your, your third year of the summit, although one, one year virtual, you know, the, the mm-hmm. COVID year. Um, what, what was the, what was the original idea behind the summit? You know, what, what gap were, were you trying to fill with, with the summit back in 2019? And, and, and do you think you've, you've managed to do that? Well, one of the things that, um, Mike Osenga, who you, I'm sure, remember, um, longtime president, publisher, then diesel and gas driven publications, we had talked about some sort of event. Because if you look around, there really isn't one for the engine and particularly off-highway industrial engine um, industry. Yes, there are trade shows and everything else, but it's, you know, you're there, but it's really an equipment show and, and things like that. But you know, we thought, look, these industries have done some tremendous things. Again, when you look at where the where the air air is now, air quality, it's remarkable how much it's improved. And the engine guys did that in a large measure. And you know, we said, wouldn't there be a nice way to to recognize that and maybe you know um, give something you know somehow highlight some of the achievements that we see all the time. And just basically, you know, tell the industry, you're doing a really valuable thing. You're doing a really good job. You need some recognition. Here it is. Um, When we became part of KHL, one of the things they're really good at is events. And so we, back in the diesel and gas driven publication days, we never had, you know, we always had the idea, but we didn't have the infrastructure able to pull it off because that's a separate, you know, events are a separate job. Well, it just so happens that KHL has a whole division of the company dedicated to events. And so it was kind of a match made in heaven from that sense. Um, because, uh, you know, it, they wanted us to do an event and we had had this idea the whole time. And, and it just, that's where it came from. And so we decided we wanted to have something where people could come and learn something, which is why we have the day long, you know, discussions on new technologies and application of technologies and where things are going in the future and things like that. And then we want to have a situation where we're recognizing, you know, people are getting some props for some of the good things they do. And, you know, there's a lot of achievement out there that, you know, the general public just doesn't know about. I always used to laugh about one of the things that, you know, I love is I call somebody and let's say I want to talk about a new fuel injector or a turbocharger or a new engine and stuff like that, their people are happy to talk to you because who else asks them about this stuff? You know, <laughs> they go home. I always, I always laugh because it's sort of like, you know, a guy has a breakthrough in his job and, you know, getting this turbine efficiency in this new turbocharger and he's all excited and he goes home and his wife says, well, what'd you do today? And he says, wow, it was great. We finally figured out the problem. This is going to be great in the marketplace. It's going to make things more. Oh, that's great. Who's picking up the kids from soccer? Yeah. You know, nobody cares about that kind of stuff, really, um, but we do. And I think the industry does. And so why not have an event where uh, everybody can kind of get together and just celebrate what everybody does? And mm-hmm. and I noticed that in at the last one, we have, unfortunately, we don't publicize it well enough, and we're going to do better on that. We have the night before the summit, there is a there's a reception that everybody who's coming to the summit is invited to. I couldn't believe we had... CEOs and vice chairmen and everybody were just 
just having a great time talking to everybody. Because really, we're kind of, while in a lot of cases they're competitors, they're, all, they're in this together. They're all facing the same issues and the same problems. And that was just, I loved seeing that. And, and I happen to know that a lot of the senior guys who were there, they really had a good time. Mm-hmm. And both at that and at the dinner and reception afterwards. So, um, you know, we, we think people have really liked this. And we're going to try to continue to do it and grow it. And, you know, um, I think there's a big future for the Diesel Progress Summit. Yeah, it's It's been really interesting. There, There's nowhere else that, you know, I can go that I know of that, that I can sit in a room and listen to, um, to, to Volvo and Deer and Cat and Cummins and, mm-hmm. and, and all those, all those guys, you know, give me, give me 45 minutes on where you see the industry, what the future is and what your company's doing about it. You know, that, that's, yeah. uh, that's a totally unique experience and, and it's, you know, it's, it's not easy to replicate in other, other venues. You know, you can, you can read about stuff and put it together for yourself, but, mm-hmm. you know, being in the room and then be able to ask those guys questions is, is phenomenal. Yeah. 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 To be able to, you know, have a, have a drink with them yeah, and, and just, you know, that's where a lot of good things happen from that sort of thing. A lot of ideas, a lot of relationships begin and that's fantastic. Yeah, um, absolutely. And, and so, you know, that's a role that really was not being filled anywhere. We didn't think. So and, do, you, do you think the, do you think the summit's going to stay focused on, um, you know, the, the new technologies and these you know, kind of roadmap discussions um, or, or, or are, there, are you looking to explore other topic areas, uh, you know, as, as part of the summit? Well, we really, I'll give you, and, and you should have gotten one if you haven't yet. We actually, you know, we always think we have some pretty good ideas on what would make interesting summits. But this year, and in fact, we just sent it out about a week ago, and we've gotten a really good response. We did a survey. We listed some of the topics and ideas that we thought would make for a really good summit. Um, but we want to hear what people said. So we ask them to rank those and then give us other ideas. What do you want to see? And because ultimately, you know, we want to, we would like to, if, if there's a need, people want a certain kind of information or, or, or people want, uh, you know, a good example is we had one, um, if you remember, we had Ann Rundle from ACT give a presentation on electric trucks. That was, that was fantastic. I, I just... Actually, I remember at the end of the presentation, everyone looked around and just went, wow. So, you yeah. know, clearly, she knows what she's talking about, and she just – it was a fantastic presentation. I don't know if the video is still up of that presentation, but that was – It is. If you attended the um, um, commercial message, if you attended the summit, you should have gotten the link that basically takes you to all the presentations and the PowerPoints they used yeah. and available to see or download. And if you, anyone who does, anyone listening who attended the summit who doesn't have that, please get in touch with me. And if you didn't attend the summit, you can still access that for a modest fee. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it was, I just remember being a really cogent presentation. She, she summarized the state of the industry and what, you know, the kind of the near term, midterm future um, really well. She did a great job. But that was a, you know, the interesting thing, that was a little bit of a digression because most of the summit consists of, more looking at certain technical things and stuff like that. That was a little more of a, okay, let's look at this market from a market point of view. Right. And so, you know, we, we looked at, it seemed pretty popular. So we may do more stuff like that. It's just, it's really hard to find 
as you know, ACT, or you may or may not know, they're really good. They cover, you know, commercial vehicles. Um, I've told them they should really expand that part of it to off-highway, and they're thinking about it. Um, but, you know, that's we'll see if that happens. But, I mean, I, I just thought that was a different sort of thing, and that was one of the questions that we asked if they if people wanted more sort of market-focused things like that. And, well, you know, next week, I guess, we'll be looking at the some of the results from our survey, and we'll figure it out then. Well, that, I think that was a great addition uh, this last year. It, it seems to me that one of the voices that's been missing is that regulatory voice, the the voice of the voice of government, and, and we've talked a lot just today about how important that that piece is going to be in driving the market. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I'm I'm sure it's not easy to go get somebody on EPA on record about what they think is going to happen in the future because they don't normally like to tender those kind of opinions mm-hmm. in public. But um, I think that's an important voice at the at the table because. In a lot of cases, the decisions get made at that regulatory level are going to drive what everybody else is doing. Certainly. Yeah. Well, we, we did have for the virtual summit that we had in 2020, we had somebody from CARB, mm-hmm. and that was pretty popular too. And I, when you say EPA or CARB, you might either one because certainly one is going to be influencing the other. Yeah. And, um, but yeah, that's, that is something that, um, is certainly part of something we're considering. Um, they they generally are pretty cooperative in in doing it. If if they really feel they have something they want to communicate to the market, you know, one of the big questions is, even you know, beyond that is when's tier five? Um, and and you know, I don't know that anybody at EPA is really ready to come out and say, well, okay, here's what it's going to be. And here's when it's going to be, because I don't know that they've completely thought that. But, yeah, we, we regulators are always very popular because people, you know, that's really determines a lot of how they can and will do business in the future. Yeah, maybe you can exempt them from the question and answer portion of the presentation. Maybe that will entice them to, to come talk. <laughs> well, maybe, or else, I, or else I could say, okay, from this point on... It's all off the record. The video stream will be ended. Yeah. And now if anybody has any questions, would be nice. Um, because, you know, the regulators have their job to do. And I think, you know, they have done it well. Like I said, I look at the Diesel Engine Emissions Regulations Program as a marvelous example of how industry can work with regulators to develop a program that's realistic and allows everybody to to meet the goals that everybody's trying to get to and still stay in business. Yeah, wh- one of the amazing things I think is that when when they announced the actual, you know, PM and NOx limits for tier 4 final, mm-hmm. the industry essentially said, we don't know if that's possible. You know, we don't that technology doesn't exist. Uh, we don't know if we could ever hit those those limits. Mm-hmm. Um, and and through, like you said, a series of phasing it in, um, developing the technologies that were that were needed, um, and, and working back and forth with regulators. I mean, they they, they got there. Um, yeah, it wasn't a totally smooth road, but you know, today it's it's all commonplace, and it's you know, all these types of after treatment devices are kind of uh, old hat. People are getting comfortable with them and know how to use them, and have figured out their ins and outs a little bit. But it was. You know, it's an interesting journey going from we have no idea if that's possible to here it is, and now every engine, every machine, you know, coming out is meeting those targets. Yeah, it's it. Um, 
You're right. And I, well, as you recall, if you saw uh, Tony Satterthwaite, the vice chairman of Cummins, said in his presentation at the Diesel Progress Summit, you know, when they laid out the emissions program, we didn't know we could get there. And that's the way it always is with technology. Yeah. Um, we don't, you know, when we start off, we don't know we can get there. When we went to the moon, we didn't know we could get there. And, and but we do these things. But if you got to give people time. You can't make it the changes or the the regulations so immediately abrupt that you know people can't do it or you know you can do almost anything technically, but the trick is you have to do it in a way that your customers can still afford to buy it. Mm -hmm. um, that's the hard part, and um, and you know they did that in a way that yeah there were some bumps where there was like okay the engines <laughs> between this year and next year are going to be fifteen percent more. And the hard part to the end user customer is he didn't get anything extra out of that. You know, he's cleaning the air. I'm sure he feels good about that, but it doesn't make his machine 15% more efficient or 15% more productive or anything like that. So, you know, ultimately the end user customer of all these engine powered things, they paid the freight for all this. Yep. And, and they don't necessarily in their mind see the return, but it is what it is. I mean, you know, and they have really good engines. I mean, for for all the complaints that people have had, have engines ever been as good as they are now, as reliable as as now? You you know, they're all so smart that you can you know how to repair them a lot faster. And my dad was a was a mechanic, as I said, and he worked on a lot of engines. And there was a lot of sitting there running the engine and listening. And then he'd go, yeah, I think the rings on number four are starting to go. Yeah. Just because he was a really good mechanic and he had a lot of experience. Well, now you just plug in a reader and it tells you the rings on number four are a little iffy. So, okay, take that off. Take those ring, you know, change that. Maybe change the ring pack. Maybe change the piston. But it's not sitting there for times and, hmm, you know, wonder what that is. Yeah. Yeah, well, we're we're back full circle to your your father and his mechanical abilities in the mm -hmm. conversation here. Well, um, the really interesting thing is, I just as an aside, I had two brothers that both went into the building trades, and um, I was always viewed as I was sort of like the slow child when it came to things technical. Now, I always did all my own work on the cars, but it just I was never as quick and smooth. I remember one time my dad sitting there watching me and laughing while I was working on my car. And, and, you know, I know way more, I knew way more back then. And now certainly through working here for the last, you know, 30 some years than the average person. But, you know, my dad was just terrific. He was just one of those instinctive kind of guys. And, and, you know, people think I know a lot and I'm sort of like, well, you should have met my dad and my brothers. That's great. I, um, I'm not I'm not a super mechanical person myself. I mean my my background's electrical electrical engineering. So the, anytime I'm down in the shop actually trying to turn a wrench or anything, everyone kind of sits back and just laughs at me a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> but, yeah well, you know, right on. <laughs> we're all. Uh, Will Rogers once had a great comment that I think I try to remember all the time. He said we're all ignorant just about different things. Right. Yeah. And you know the corollary is we're all good at certain things. I had an uncle who was a farmer. And he came to visit me once at my office, and he just, he didn't think that what I did really counted as work. He, you know, <laughs> I didn't smell like, you know, I walked out of a barn when I got home. So that's not work. Yeah. Um, so it's all your perspective. 
Well, Mike, thank you very much for joining us today. I do appreciate your time. Uh, look forward to attending the summit this fall, uh, September again for the summit. It will be September. Um, we've moved it. Uh, it's well out of the way of, you know, for those people who are going to go like Bauman or anything, it's, it's out of there. I, it's, um, operating from memory, September 27th, um, reception on the 26th, same place at the, uh, low Chicago O'Hare hotel. We got really good response on that. And part of the reason there is that it's easy for everybody into O'Hare. Um, well, so it's yes. easy for everybody or it's impossible for everybody. It depends on the weather. <laughs> Depending on the weather. Yes. <laughs> yes. Because if it rains in Chicago, O'Hare throws a shoe yeah. and doesn't know what to do. But, um, I really appreciate it. This has been a lot of fun. All right. Thank, thanks, Mike. Uh, we'll, uh, we'll send you some links once everything's posted here. Sounds good. All right. Take care. Good to see you. Thanks for listening to Ingenuity. We record and release a new episode every month. Be sure to follow us at Ingenuity Podcast on Instagram for updates about future episodes and industry news.